welcome to a special edition of the McGregor Podcast. Recently on a Wednesday night, as part of our Journey Together ministry, we hosted a hot topic night with Pastor Russell Howard leading. The topic, worry. As you can imagine, it was a pretty hot topic. The title of Pastor Russell's teaching that night was Thinking Biblically About Worry. And joining me before we go to that teaching is Pastor Russell. Welcome, Pastor Russell. Hey, Brother Mark. I am glad to be with you this uh, this episode. Yes. And before we get to your teaching that night, I wanted just to ask you a real quick question. What You went through a lot of preparation for this. This was a little bit of a different teaching style for you in preparing for this. What what were some things that you learned as you went through your preparation or one specific thing that really stood out to you? Yeah, yeah. The... Um yeah, you know, we, we you and I had discussed months earlier the possibility of doing this thing on worry, and 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 I confess I've got a lot of areas in my life where I greatly struggle. W- worry is not particularly one of them, but I understand it's 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 out there, and it's mm. really really out there. And so, to get at a thing in my own kind of teaching process, I I I think a lot in terms of words and definitions, and and this idea of worry, and 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 what is what is worry, and I think. A lot of times you would define worry in terms of, of uh, sort of an uh, unspecific fear of an unknown future, mm-hmm. maybe. Right. And so I, I remember scrawling that out and kind of asking myself, could I sit down on that and would that be? And then it, it, I kept coming back to the fact that the, the future is not unknown. Well, in what sense do you mean it's not unknown? Well, it's certainly unknown to us, right? I mean, I have no idea what I'm going to eat for dinner tonight right, right. now, but... It's not unknown to God, right? And for me, that was sort of the 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 little epiphany. Um, if 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 my future is not ultimately unknown, then it then it is not only known, but it's it's a uh, it is in the sphere of a sovereign God, and so there must be some relationship between the unknownness of my future as I see it, but the certainty and confidence I, I can have in, in, in the Lord as the one who owns my future. And that opened up for me what I thought was a, a more, more biblical understanding of worry. Yeah, and it was definitely, I've heard messages on worry before. This was definitely a very unique approach, and I thought you did a really, really awesome job and not just showing us from a biblical standpoint, but also giving us practical ways to apply what we're reading there in scripture. I would have hoped to do that. I'm glad to hear that that I did. Well, let's go ahead and join uh, part one. We're going to be dividing your teaching into two parts. Not saying you went long, but uh, (laughs) we we gave you plenty of time, (laughs) allowed you plenty of time, but we're going to divide this into two parts. And so we're going to listen to part one in just a minute. I do want to let the listener know that there is the same outline that we handed out on that night that's available in the show notes of this podcast. So if people want to see that, and it was very helpful, I think, for people to have your outline in front of them as they heard the teaching. Yeah, I think that would be really, really a good good listening guide, yeah, act, even absolutely. for the podcast. So that's available for them if they would like to pause right here and uh, go print that out or download it or however they want to get a hold of that to see that as we go through there. So join me now as we listen together to part one of Thinking Biblically About Word. All right, introductory disclaimer. If you are that 
couple that Brother Mark just described, or you are like them, you got to promise me. Well, let me let me do a little spoiler alert. I might I might end up coming out against worry by the time we're done this evening. Hopefully, that won't surprise you. You are not allowed to beat up your spouse. Because your spouse, who knows that you struggle, already knows that you struggle less in this area than he or she does, has agreed to sit with you tonight, knowing that almost inevitably I'm going to probably come out against worry, and yet your spouse is with you tonight. They're worried about how you're going to treat them <laughs> with what we talk about tonight. And so it's your job not to beat up your spouse. And it's my job to walk through this material without beating up anybody. But I do believe since, since worry happens in the, in, in the internal battlefield, worry happens in, 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 the, um, in the landscape of how we think about things. The best place for us to, to see if we can get at better mapping internally to help us perhaps do less worrying um, is to, again, come at it the battle line. Worry is not about what actually happens in the real world. It's like some person famously said, don't tell me not to worry. It works. I know because 95% of the things I worry about never happen. I want to thank Brother Mark for those, uh, that opening prayer. I do want to encourage uh, those of you for whom, and I'm not picking on anyone, but those of you for whom Wednesday night at McGregor is not a part of your regular rhythm of life, I um, affirm, second and amen, the thing Brother Mark said, this body of Christ is, is disproportionately gifted with outstanding Bible teachers. And there's not a thing being taught here on Wednesday night that wouldn't be worth your time. So I want to commend the journey together, sort of Wednesday night um, variety. Pick a track. There's some great stuff going on here. And with that, let me, uh, let me, let me wade in. First, I want to start with this. I, uh, I don't know everybody in the room. I haven't had a chance to hear all of your testimonies. In a room this size... With a topic like this, the law of averages makes it very probable that there, there's, there might be somebody in the room that doesn't know Jesus. There might be somebody in the room who has not come to that place where as of now you are trusting in the grace of God through Jesus Christ's death on the cross into which you have, you have thrown your life by faith for your eternal salvation. And if that's not been your, your path, if that's not been your experience, you're not a Christian, regardless of your, of your biography, regardless of your self-labeling. If you're not trusting Jesus Christ on the basis of his grace alone, by your faith to, uh, 
to take you home to heaven one day. Um, you are not nearly worried enough. Whatever is bugging you, I wish larger matters were bugging you more. Um, three scriptures that I'll share. Matthew 10, 28. And I've got a lot of scripture coming at you this evening. Uh, Brother, Brother Mark uh, was very, very kind and, and Nancy in his office to take a, a, a pretty, pretty badly formatted um, outline that I'm teaching from and turn it into something pretty coherent for your handout if you've got that. Matthew 10, 28 says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And Jesus is talking about himself or certainly talking about the, the, the whole of the Trinity. Sometimes we get the artificial notion that the God of the Old Testament is a stern old guy, hard to deal with. And the God of the New Testament is all this universal niceness. Jesus is kind, he is loving, he is gracious, he is merciful, and one day in his just wrath, he will throw the switch on hell. Hell is Jesus's providence, and he will demonstrate his glory in the eternal condemnation of those whom will be condemned, or who will be condemned. And if you're outside of Christ, you've much to worry about. Ephesians 5, verses 5 and 6. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater. It's interesting that Ephesians puts covetousness and idolatry on the same plane because we know that idolatry is one of the big bad and we tend to give ourselves a little bit of a pass on covetousness for getting the 10th commandment that kind of hangs down there by itself. He's taking the 10th commandment and looping it right back into the first. But this is not a study on Ephesians. Perhaps someday we'll get to that. He, the, the, this person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, this catalog of sin, because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Colossians 3, 5 and 6 says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Very similar wording. Same author, humanly speaking, right? Paul, the Apostle Paul. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So what's ahead for the unbeliever? A massive eternal collision with the just wrath of a holy God. So if you're here tonight because your neighbor invited you and your neighbor knows that you're worried about interest rates or the price of gas or they are as yet undiagnosed joint pain and you're an unbeliever, first, I'm glad your friend brought you. It was a kindness of your friend and I'm really, really glad you're here. But <laughs> the only issue that can mess you up eternally is your unforgiven sin before a holy God. And if I stood up here and offered you some psychology tricks to short circuit the brain's worry circuit, 
I would be like an oncologist that does nothing but prescribe morphine. You might feel better, but the problem has not been addressed. And I can't do that. And meanwhile, if you're an unbeliever, you live in a broken world where nothing lasts, nothing works well for very long, every single relationship is poisoned by sin, and you are dying. Of course you're worried. Of course you're worried you'd be nuts not to be if you're outside of Christ. That being said, I, I do know the testimonies of many of you. I look around the room and see folks whose, whose story I've known, in some, some cases for, goodness gracious, the nearly 20 years that I've served here are, some big chunk of it. And I am very confident that tonight I'm speaking to a lot of believers. And so if I can leave behind this idea that the unbelievers aren't worried enough and get on to the good part where we can speak together as those who love the Lord, those who desire to live in alignment with his word, those who are eager to follow him as Lord, Let's talk. I've broken out some of what I've called for tonight's uh, outline, essential truths. And I think they're on your notes. They'll be on the screens as well. I know that we ran out of the note sheets from what I understand, but, but I think you'll have time to write down these essential truths and maybe do a little bit of working on the scripture. Essential truth number one, God is in charge. Therefore, now be careful because there's a therefore that hangs off that. And if you, if you amen that God is in charge, then brace yourself for what's after the therefore. Therefore, his will happens. You can't say he's in charge and then turn around and say, but he doesn't get his way very often. If he's in charge, that means he gets his way. His will happens. And we can get into a, a, um, a multi-leveled, deeply woven analysis of the relationship between the decree of God and the permissive will of God and all those sort of things. And if you buy the Coke Zero or provide the coffee, I'll put my feet up with you and we can go and go and go on that. It's fun. But fundamentally... Two passages. First, Ephesians 1.11. I love Ephesians 1.11 for its sheer succinctness. Ephesians 1.11 says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of, and this is a, this is a descriptor of the identity of God, him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. If you treasure Romans 8:28, that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, then you have to treasure Ephesians 1:11. It's exactly the same terminology, all things. And the reason eight, Romans 8:28 
can be asserted confidently is the all things of Romans 8.28 that work together for good are the all things of Ephesians 1.11 that God is working. The in-chargeness of God. By the way, I skipped a, 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 a point I wanted to make ahead of Essential Truth 1 and I'll go back. I got a lot of very dense notes tonight. That's, I won't even get to wander around the room nearly as much as I like to. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. Write this above Essential Truth 1. Uh, central, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. Hopefully an exercise in what we'll spend some time this evening doing. For the weapons of our warfare are, are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Destroy strongholds. And then in the next verse, he fleshes out with different words. What does that mean? To, de- to destroy strongholds in a spiritual warfare sense. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now that take every thought captive in my view is not predominantly an external debating exercise. It is an internal discipline of the mind exercise. The, the thoughts that run amok and do me the most harm are my own, not yours, right? The thoughts I need to take captive are the whack-doodle stuff that Russell comes up with. And, and I, I must employ the word of God to put those wacky thoughts, to put them down, take them captive. So... All right, Ephesians, Ephesians 1.11, a longer paragraph in Scripture, but one that, that you ought to have marked in your Bible, one you ought to treasure, is Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. We're still talking about this essential truth number one. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Notice he did not merely say seeing the end from the beginning. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God is in charge, therefore his will happens. Now if you don't believe that, if you don't believe that, 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 that's a sort of practical atheism. And you're in danger of worshiping a lesser God of your own invention. A God whose scale is a bit less disquieting. Because the idea of a God who's utterly omnipotent and acts like it, utterly omniscient and acts like it, Utterly sovereign and acts like, well, that's a great, big, disquieting God. But that is God as the word of God describes him. 
And if your version of God is, is less than that, a little, a little bit of practical atheism. By that I mean a little bit of day to day, to day you're living as though, well, you really don't have to concern yourself over much with God. He only steps in from time to time and, 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 and occasionally might hit a switch or occasionally might do something. R.C. Sproul famously said, if there is one atom in the universe that is not subject to the complete sovereignty of God, then God is not sovereign. He's right. But if you do believe that God is in charge, and you should, then that brings us to essential truth number two. Few of you in the room would get sucked in by the extreme craziness of the, of the modern sort of Kenneth Copeland brand of nuts health and wealth gospel. And if I've just offended you by using Kenneth Copeland and nuts in the same sentence, I shouldn't have. How rude of me. But see what, what leaks in, and I think it leaks in maybe from the, from the little edges of that movement. It also leaks in from, from our own desire to <laughs> to turn our face to oblique angles when dealing with reality rather than face into it. Because here comes essential truth number two. While God is in charge, we live in a broken world and terrible things actually happen. Terrible things actually happen. Cognitively, in terms of the your ability to process a statement and know whether it's true or false, you, you've got to agree with me. You can't deny the reality of terrible things. But what you might not have considered is that there's a relationship between a, a completely in-charge God and a world where terrible things happen. And that relationship, I confess, can make us quite uncomfortable. See, we, 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 we might have manufactured an attribute of God that he doesn't actually claim for himself. And this is not in your notes. So I get to wander away from my podium because it's actually not in mine either. <laughs> we've, we've manufactured an attribute of God that I'll call omni-altruism. Omni-altruism. That is, we imagine that God is always nice as we would define niceness. That, that would be, I guess by definition, that would be nice. But there are, there are many, many scriptures we could consider. I'll share some. Amos chapter three, verse six. We went through Amos not that long ago, I think about a year and a half ago. 
Amos 3.6, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Now, Amos is not crediting the Lord with evil, but he's crediting the Lord with sovereignty. He's crediting the in-chargedness of God. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Well, that's not nice. Well, if you can show me one person who ever died in one disaster in one city that wasn't on the wrong side of the wages of sin is death, then I will agree with you that God has violated his character. If anyone has ever met a disaster that they did not ultimately deserve from a just and holy God, then I'll agree with you that Amos 3.6 is out of God's character. You cannot show me such a person. Job 1, 20 through 22, this is probably familiar to many of you. This is in the immediate wake of that, of that rolling set of catastrophes that have happened to Job throughout Job chapter 1. And he's, he's, he's lost everything. And his response, then Job arose and tore his robe, and shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped, worshipped, worshipped. Forget worry. Everything he could possibly have ever worried about ever has happened to him. And his response while mourning is also worshipful. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And lest we would be prone to think, man, Job, you got it all wrong. The, the narrator voice, and remember, when you're, when you're studying scripture and, and, and there's a narrative section, a story, it's history if it's a story in scripture, but it's, a, it's cast in your Bible as a, as, a, as, a, as a narrative and a character is speaking. You might have an inerrant, infallible quote from a character who's speaking error. That's why it's important to read for context. But when the narrator voice steps in, and, and comments regarding something the character has said, then that's infallible commentary. That's, that's, you are now being told what you should feel about what that character just said, as happens here. Verse 22, in all this, this statement that the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. An in-charge God has permitted the loss of my stuff and my house and my family. And I worship him. He's right to do so. Acts 17, 26. Paul is preaching to the 
oh, so sophisticated philosophers of Athens. This is from the Mars Hill sermon for those of you who are students of Acts. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. By the way, that alone tells you Genesis 1 through 11 is factual history, uh, lest you ever would have thought it otherwise. But reading on, having God, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Nations come and go and rise and fall as God has determined. And some of the circumstances under which that happens are remarkably unpleasant. Are they unjust? unless you can show me a person for whom the wages of their sin is not, they, they get death, but they don't have any sin. It is formidable. It is a mystery sometimes why, <laughs> why. But Acts seventeen twenty six tells you who even up to the rising and falling of nations. Well, it can be a lot to reckon with. And part of our problem in our cultural setting is we live in a setting where maybe again, maybe we're not consumed with a, with a, a, a bad theology that says God wants every single one of your days to be giddily joyful, materially prosperous, and astonishingly healthy. Maybe we're not buying that. But we live in a culture that, that, that has placed an extreme high value on short-term, sheer, and baseless optimism. It's all going to work out, and it's all going to work out by next Tuesday. Is a, is a viewpoint that is perceived as virtuous. And so departures from that viewpoint are seen as non-virtuous. The problem is the living God, as he has described himself, does not share that viewpoint. And his overarching rule of his universe just doesn't work like that. And he never said it would. Which leads us to essential truth number three. Brother Russell, I was not worried till I came here tonight. <laughs> I know, I know. <sighs> Y'all are so kind. And that's a good thing. Because here comes essential truth number three. Terrible things may and probably will happen to you. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that in church before. Terrible things may and probably will happen to you. 1 Peter 4, 12, I love I love the clarity 
of 1 Peter 4.12. I think I confessed to y'all Sunday morning, Simon Peter is such a dear old friend of mine. I love him for his awkwardness and his bumbliness and his immaturity during the earthly ministry of Jesus. But I love him for his plain-spoken fisherman's clarity of thought as he grew old and kept writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And here's what he says in 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You know what he just said? He just said terrible things may and probably will happen to you. He said it better. I'm not divinely inspired and he was. But my, my essential truth three is a paraphrase and a not half bad one of 1 Peter 4.12. Don't freak out when the terrible thing happens to you as though what has happened to you is somehow freakishly unusual or unexpected. John 16, 33. At the rate we're going, we'll get there, I think, at mid-2025 on a Sunday morning. Nah, sooner than that. Jesus speaking to his disciples the night before the cross. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Now that's not an end times doctrine statement. In the world you will have trouble. You just will. You just will. I was, I was deciding whether or not I wanted to replace the tires on my car because they were close. And I had been advised that it was probably time. And in the course of making that $100 decision times four, my battery quit. And I thought about it. I thought, Lord, what have I done in the last couple of days that has completely ticked you off? And then I realized if that was the way he worked with his children, I'd be living with him being directly and violently ticked off at me all the time, and I ought to be surprised when a light switch works. Batteries fail. Tires wear out. And it's not unusual. And it's not God picking on you. And you and I both know I'm using tires and batteries. I could fill those sentences in with things far more grave, couldn't I? And we'd still be talking about that happens. And it's not unheard of that it happens. So it's not unheard of should it happen to you. James 1, 2, and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Are you starting to see a pattern emerge? 
If what I'm worried about is some upcoming possible trial, but I've already been told in advance that my response to that trial should be joy, I'm worried about an opportunity I'm going to have to be joyful? That's, that's kind of knotted up funny. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That is perseverance, steadiness, reliability, character qualities that as a growing Christian, you're interested in developing. So, terrible things may and probably will happen to you. Can we please have a fun, essential truth? Because by this time at my office, as I was working through this material, I was not worried, but I was starting to feel a bit, well, gloomy. Can we please have a fun, essential truth? <laughs> well, if you want that fun, essential truth, you'll want to join us for part two of thinking biblically about worry.